HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we hear from Jenny Best. Jenny's is a story of a top-tier New York City ballerina who conquered her own struggles with food and then was gobsmacked when it came time to begin feeding solids to her own firstborn son. And that was even before the twins. Jenny leapt into action and became the founder of an online resource called Solid Starts. It's a multidisciplinary and very comprehensive website helping babies and their parents begin the journey towards a healthy and joyful life with food. Let's have a listen to Jenny's amazing story. Hi, Louisa. Thank you for having me. Gosh, my story. You know, we all have these stories and where where to begin? I used to be a ballerina with the New York City Ballet and like many ballerinas, had a pretty complicated relationship with food. When I retired and got pregnant and had children, it was really important to me to raise a child who loved food, who didn't have the baggage that I carried with it. I have many, many years of being told I was too heavy. I didn't have the right body for ballet. And mind you, that was at 120 pounds at five foot six, that I couldn't get this role or that role, if, or rather I would get this role or that role if I had just lose a few pounds, that kind of thing. So I went through my entire adolescence and early 20s in the ballet really feeling like I was fat and that food was something that was to be really just avoided and to feel guilty about. I was very afraid to eat in restaurants. I remember I would leave the theater near Columbus Circle there. And after the show on Saturday night, I remember walking home and everybody was at these restaurants eating outside and they were all really enjoying themselves. And I remember just thinking, that is not possible for me. Like first, I would never eat in front of somebody else because that's how bad it had gotten. And I can't imagine ever enjoying it. So when I ended up 
injuring my back really badly. And so my career was cut off short, um, quite fortuitously, actually. I, with the distance of time, I can now see that was a fortuitous thing for me. So only after five years of dancing professionally, I found myself on bed rest for a year, healing a very bad back injury. And I remember my doctor kind of looked at me and he said, well, Jenny, how does Broadway sound? And it was his way of saying, you know, you're never going to be on point again. You're never going to be in New York City ballet. You're never going to be at that kind of caliber of company again. For me, it was, you know, no, I'm either there or I'm not. I, I can't do the in-between thing. That's never going to feel satisfying for me personally. So I decided to leave. Here I am staring at the ceiling in bed rest for a year. And I applied to college. I was in my mid-20s at that point. I had skipped college to dance. It's sort of like the Olympics. You put boyfriends in college and all that stuff on hold to pursue your career. And I'm staring at the ceiling. I've got my laptop in bed. And I just start applying to colleges, writing the essays and, and doing all of that. Thankfully, I got into NYU. I paid my own way. And I felt like, oh, I am so much older than all these kids here, you know, <laughs> like pull your pants up, like dress properly. I've got a job to go to. When you're paying your own way, it's, you, take, you take things a little bit more seriously, perhaps. So I graduated in three years, <laughs> needless to say, <laughs> took all summer courses, did everything to get out of there as fast as possible. In my last year, 9-11 happened. And I remember feeling like, what am I doing studying economics? What am I doing here? What's what's my purpose? And I just remember walking toward Ground Zero and to St. Vincent's Hospital down there and thinking, you know, what can I do to help to volunteer? And that really started off a, a long decade of civil service working for the city. I worked for Mike Bloomberg for a decade. It was a really meaningful part of my life, but definitely a diversion from what I've been doing before. So after having two Blackberries on my hip and 2 a.m. conference calls working from the mayor's office year after year, I decided that I needed a break. So I left, I left city government and left the mayor's office. I was so burned out. Now, mind you, you know, I was in the kind of job where we were like running to crises and building collapses and fires and things like that. So, you know, your life was interrupted every other day and it was, it was very difficult to take care of yourself and to rest. When I left the city, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to go on vacation. I'm not going to kind of run away from the stress and the tired of all this. I'm just going to be on a staycation in New York City and see what I gravitate to. I had no idea what I wanted to do next, but I knew that government and politics were probably not the permanent thing for me. And all I wanted to do was just pick up books. I remember picking up Michael Pollan's book, Omnivorous Dilemma, and taking myself out to lunch. And I just sat there and I thought, I'm going to try to enjoy this meal outside in public and read this book. <laughs> That's going to be my vacation. And I ended up doing that day after day after day for about three months as I was sort of in between careers. And it was the ultimate healing process for me. And I just fell really hard into reading about food and food anthropology and food culture and agriculture and food politics and all of that stuff. So a pretty winding, circuitous route to, to get to baby food. But here I am. <laughs> so Jenny, then you got pregnant with your first child. Tell us about that. 
I did what most parents did at the time. I went to the store and bought, you know, a jar of Gerber purees or whatever and, and went home and started feeding my son. And he hated it from day one hated it. It was like kind of turning his face and really didn't like me coming at him with a spoon. That really devolved into a battle at the table, if you will. It started out with, here comes the airplane, open wide, into here, have my iPhone, open your mouth, please, please eat, please, please, please just eat. And it became a huge stress in my life and my relationship and with my child as well, and lasted for, for a good long while. By the time he had his first birthday, he stopped eating altogether and was lower than the first percentile in weight. Our pediatrician was wanting to put him on a feeding pack, you know, installed on his body, like basically tube feeding, because they were so worried about his weight. And I remember just sitting in the pediatrician's office feeling like, I totally failed. I totally failed. And, you know, just please, please, please give me one more week so I can get him back on track. There's got to be a way. So I met with all these nutritionists and pediatric feeding therapists, and we kind of traced it back to this prolonged, exclusive spoon feeding experience where he really felt he had no control over it. The control he was going to set was going to be around food and at the table, and that was going to be in the form of protest. For him, it's a psychological thing. He likes to assert control. And so the first thing that you want to do in that kind of scenario, because every kid who has an eating problem, whether they're older or younger, like Charlie was a baby or, or a teenager, you kind of have to chase the why. There's a reason there, whether it's some sort of aversion to texture, to control issues, to psychological body image, that kind of stuff. So for Charlie, it was really about control. He wanted to control something in his life. So the best thing you can do in that scenario is to hand over the control, to let them make choices. So instead of just serving steak, beans, and mashed potatoes, you're serving steak two ways. You know, you've got little pieces of steak and big pieces of steak or a mashed potato to use with a spoon and a potato fry, that kind of thing. So giving them choices was key for him, but it's, it's still been a long road, truthfully. So when I was pregnant with twins, the first thing that my mind went to was was food. Oh my God, I'm not going to repeat this mistake again. I'm not going to go through this again. I can't go through this again. It was too hard and it's still too hard. So I fell really hard into researching alternatives to spoon feeding, kind of just relying on my sort of intuition that he didn't like it. I didn't like it. Kind of felt like I was forcing him. So uh, I stumbled upon baby led weaning, which is a method by way of introducing solid food to babies where you skip purees and just serve finger food. So, you know, here, baby, have a piece of steak <laughs> instead of the baby blender and, and all the machinery and, and things that you might need to uh, puree something. As I was researching, baby food, I fell deep into the history of baby food too, which is really fascinating. But if you really trace things back, you kind of realize that baby food itself is a bit of a construct uh, and a corporate construct at that. Prior to the aisles and aisles of these perfect little organic pouches and jars of perfectly thin textureless purees, it was just food. 
And of course, the parent was modifying it in some way, maybe straining it, maybe mashing it, you know, maybe slicing and dicing it, that kind of thing. And often sometimes pre-chewing it and then handing that over. But it was real food in a wide variety of textures and flavors. And most importantly, it was the food the family was eating. It wasn't this special meal for baby, right? It wasn't something made just for baby. Can't imagine the parents back then with four or more children and a farm to tend and all of that were making special meals just for for one child. It's not how it worked. So it really felt intuitive to me to break against the normal path and to try something different. So we started the babies out with finger food. It was like, oh my gosh, my mind was blown day one, they were smashing and licking and tasting and biting and just having the time of their life, really enjoying it. And I was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is what everyone needs to see. We're seeing a rise in picky eating, a rise in allergies, you know, all of this. And I truly believe it stems to how we're introducing food to babies. So that's where my my love of baby food and feeding comes. It's from personal pain, truthfully. I'm trying to help parents prevent unnecessary picky eating and unnecessary allergies and, and very selective eating because it really has an impact on the entire family. So of course, behind all of that, if you pull the curtain back, there's this, you know, old ballerina behind there. Okay, we'll be back with Jenny in a moment, and we'll hear how she mustered the confidence to leave home and become a ballerina, and just how her dance career led to a deep dive into the history of how we feed our babies. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. And now we are back with Jenny Best. One little piece that I just want to ask you to talk about, because it just struck me when I talked to you before, was how you, as this very little girl in Nevada, convinced your parents to let you (laughs) go on this bizarro, I mean, yeah. I would have had trouble as a parent. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what was it? How did you how did you know that dance and leaving home and all of that? How did all that work? You know, when I was little and I don't even really remember my first ballet class or why I was there, but 
I just remember feeling captivated by it, by the music. And there was, you know, my, my life at the time was was complicated. My parents were were splitting up and I was an only child and I was young, five years old, I think, when I first started taking ballet. And the music would go on and all of a sudden things felt like they were in control and they were calm. So it was a real refuge for me in a lot of ways. As as these things go, you know, you start taking one ballet class and it's like, mom, can I take five more? And then can I go every day? And then can I go away this summer to the special program for ballet? Every summer I would bring her the dance magazine that, you know, would come to the house and I would show her all the programs in, in other states and other cities. I knew that dancing and studying in Reno, Nevada was only going to get me so far and that I'd eventually have to go away if I wanted to pursue it seriously. So I um, I would bring the magazine to my mom and say, Mom, I have to go to New York City. I have to go there. There's New York City Ballet is there, and they have a school. And that's how you get into New York City Ballet. So I have to go there. And every year she would say, nope, nope, this is not happening. <laughs> you are not going to New York City by yourself. You're 10 years old. This is not happening. Every year I came back asking her over and over again. And then finally, they agreed. My stepfather came into the picture at this point. They agreed to let me go to a summer program in California and then Seattle. And I kind of worked my way to New York City by the time I was 17 and auditioned for the school and got in. And by then they realized that this was no longer in their control. This was happening, whether they liked it or not. But my mom has been a huge supporter of, of everything I've done and just really let me fly in a lot of ways. Yes, I, I came to New York City as a 16-year-old girl. I was older than everyone else in the school at that point, if you can believe it or not. I was like one of the older people. I had my first full-time job at age 17. It was it was a bizarre existence, but one that I was very kind of primed for. I, I was always very independent and wanted to chart my own path and I can do it myself, you know, that kind of a kid. So it worked out well for us, but I'm not sure my mom can go through that again. <laughs> you know, it's like sending your child off to college, but a little bit too early. <laughs> Got into all the trouble that you're, you know, you would experience, but at a much, much earlier age. I couldn't do it myself now as a parent, truthfully. And everyone asks me, you know, oh, are you going to uh, put 80 or any of the, your babes in, you know, in dance class? I'm like, no, nope, nope. I mean, if one of them gravitate toward it on their own, of course, we will support their dreams and, and do what they, you know, support them in any way we can. But it, it, it is still a very unhealthy environment, in my opinion. Can they do anything to make it a healthy environment? You know, I think they are. I'm a little distanced from what's happening now in the ballet, but it's a lot of undoing, right? I mean, how do you change culture? It's it's a um, a complicated, you know, winding task and path. It's not a linear thing. I think with time it will get better, but just like we're seeing in the modeling industry, there's a little bit more acceptance on the consumer side to see plus size models and things like that as just a regular appearance in a magazine. But it's also a very American thing. I don't know if it kind of stems back to the Puritan days of cleansing our souls with food and abstinence, you know, abstinence of X, Y, and Z. But my guess is that it probably does. Are feeding problems common in small babies? I had no idea. 
It's shockingly common. I didn't realize it at the time. I thought it was just my particular failing. And, you know, surely because I had had an eating disorder and a complicated relationship, of course, I messed this up, right? That was my analysis at the time. But it's really common. We actually, at Solid Starts, we did a Google analysis a couple of years ago of all of the searches in Google related to baby food to see what are people looking for? Picky eating was the number one searched for thing when it came to children and food and babies and food. Picky eating, not allergies, not choking, picky eating. So, you know, we know it's happening more and more, but no one's really digging into why. We have entire industries and careers popping up to support it. So, I mean, there are feeding therapists now. There weren't feeding therapists in the 1940s. Like that, that wasn't a job. It's a very needed job. I love our feeding therapists on our team. They're everything to me. Um, but, you know, in like a lot of things, I think in the States here, we're addressing the symptoms and not the, the root cause. So, yeah, when I look back, I can analyze it from a place of, oh, I know exactly how this happened and I know exactly where we went wrong and all of that. But at the moment, you know, as a mother, you're so wired to make sure your child is eating. You know, you go from breastfeeding or bottle feeding, literally carrying the child, feeding them from your body to then trusting that they're going to open their mouth, <laughs> take that food in and, and swallow it. And that handoff relationship is very unsupported. There's so much information about breastfeeding and formula and all of that. I mean, there are massive institutions devoted to just that one topic and supporting mothers in that journey and lots of government funding too, right? But when it comes to solids, you basically go to your pediatrician, the six-month appointment, and they give you like a half a page handout that says, you know, okay, so start some rice cereal, four tablespoons, you know, a day or whatever, and a jar of baby food. And there's no information on the how. And there's no information on what happens if your child won't open their mouth. And there's no information on the long game, right? We want to raise happy, healthy eaters who self-regulate, who know when to stop eating, and who take food for what it is, sustenance. It's not this other layered, complicated thing. Yet a lot of babies in the United States are growing up as really unhappy eaters is the way I would characterize it. I'd like to prevent that from happening. What, is, what does that actually mean? And what is the phrase? Baby led weaning is a method of introducing solid food to babies, whereby you skip over the purees and the spoon feeding and you just go straight to, to finger food. If we do our job well in 10 years from now, my hope is that the parent who's trying to figure out how to introduce baby to food isn't thinking of which method to go about it, but is just thinking of what food am I introducing? It doesn't have to be a pouch. It doesn't have to be rice cereal. There's no evidence or any developmental need, actually, for some of these foods. They are corporations um, came out with in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and, and beyond. And we kind of just did what 
everyone what our parents did because that's what you did. That's what everyone else did. Baby led weaning is really picking up speed. It's fascinating. You know, we have almost a half a million followers on Instagram now through organic growth, which has been really wild through just word of mouth in the last year. I assumed they would all be second time moms, you know, moms like me, who kind of did the traditional route of purees and spoon feeding, had a struggle at some point through this and realized they want to try something different. And so here they are, they're trying something different. To my shock, when we surveyed them, more than 70% of them are first time moms. So I think we're seeing a really huge generational shift with some of the the millennial parents and older Gen Gen Z parents, um, I think that we're seeing a shift. They're not doing what was always done before. They don't care about that at all. They're not asking mom or dad, how did you do this with me? They're going straight to Google, actually. And then they're finding organizations like ours who are making a case for um, doing something in a new progressive way. I like to call it finger food first because it feels more approachable to me and, and more relatable. But it's just a matter of serving baby finger food before before purees. That brings up the won't they choke? Is this safe? You know, kind of a knee jerk reaction. But it's just a matter of education. You know, there are studies out there showing that there's no increased risk of choking. If I might, you know, kind of geek out for a minute on swallowing and the neurobiology of swallowing, babies have, and particularly six and seven month old babies, so right about when you're starting solids, they have this built in reflex called a gag reflex. When something gets, you know, kind of far back in your mouth, your body will thrust it forward, your tongue will thrust it forward. Well, fascinatingly, a baby's gag reflex is very far forward on their tongue. If anything, like a piece of rice, even nothing, you know, tiny, tiny piece of food touches the middle part of their tongue or even the first third, they're going to gag. So they've got all these kind of protective reflexes built in to help them. The babies who are started on purees exclusively and for a very long time, right? So mom is spoon feeding them for a very long time. There's no finger food on the table. What we're seeing is delayed motor skills, delayed fine motor skills, delayed oral motor skills, weak jaws, the inability to have like a graded control to know how much pressure you put on a piece of food before swallowing it. The vast majority of medical institutions now agree that six months of age is the prime developmentally appropriate time to be starting solids. At that age, a baby's capable of feeding themselves. So we're kind of still doing it the old way, but unnecessarily so, right? The babies are, are older. <laughs> they don't need purees, but we're doing it because it's what we've always done before. So I'm trying to turn that notion upside down a bit. And with our food database, we have this free food database online where you can look up any food and see how to prepare it for your baby from, you know, an apple to chicken to edible grasshoppers actually are in the food database. Grasshoppers are very popular in Mexico, for example. When you look at your five-year-old now, do you, do you worry through every meal with him? Yes. I'm worried about him, but it's more of a stress, frankly. The more you pressure a child to eat, the less likely they're going to eat. The more you back off, the more they will likely eat. So he really has to come around to this himself. We're creating the conditions for success at the table. But that's all I can do as a parent. You know, I have to stop there. He has to choose it himself. So am I kind of watching out of the corner of my eyes? How many bites is he taking? Sure. 
when I look at the table and my twins have demolished all of their food and then come to my lap to eat my food as well. And my older son's plate is still full. It, it's painful. It, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not something that goes away. I suspect that he'll have some struggles around that for, for quite some time. Maybe it'll shake out in adolescence, but I now know the division of responsibility. My job is to put healthy food on the table and to give him some choices. And his job is to decide whether he wants to eat how much. The more you force that as a parent, you kind of end up in this downward spiral, right? So the only way through really is through empowerment. It's been a pretty amazing journey to see. We've got about a million people using the database right now. Solid Starts is a healing passion project as much as anything else. I finally found my full circle. <laughs> what a story. To learn more about Jenny and about Solid Starts, visit solidstarts.com. There's a lot to learn there. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. <laughs>